Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Deacon Drew, Deacon Mark, Deacon Patrick. Hi, guys. How's it going? Good. How are you doing today, Dennis? This is Good. Deacon Drew. I'm going. I'm doing well myself. Good. And this is Deacon Mark. Good to see you guys. And Deacon Patrick, the other one. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> we got multiple Patricks, yeah. That's a good point. We do have multiple Patricks. We have Patrick Olet, and we have Patrick Murphy Racy. And, and you can never have enough Patricks. But, never. Oh. And we celebrate St. Patrick's Day with a passion around here. But here's my question. I actually do have a question for Patrick, the one who's with us, not the one who's not with us, because that would be like a time and space thing. Patrick, we know, I don't think our listeners know, that you do a lot of traveling on your motorcycle. So oh, question, yeah. So my question is, where are you right now? Are you local? Are you out west? Are you? In- I was out west last week. I was in Phoenix riding the 191. It's one of my favorite roads, but I'm back in Knoxville. But in between, I was in Chicago visiting my folks in assisted living. So I just got back from there. Well, I hope they're doing well. Yeah, they're holding their own. Good. Patrick, so, you spend a lot of time on your bike. About 15000 a year. Wow. <laughs> when you it's say you're fantastic. back now, you're back where? For the listeners? In Tennessee. I'm in Tennessee. I'm in Knoxville where I live. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, I love riding the motorcycle. I sometimes, like a lot of people, I find it easier to pray on the motorcycle at speed than I sometimes even do at church. You know, I just love to be out there exploring with a sense of adventure. Great. Well, well I remember the old book, Drew, Are You Running With Me, Jesus? Remember that? Malcolm uh, Boyd's, it was big back 100 years ago. So maybe Patrick should do, you know, are you riding with me, Jesus? I think Paulus Press might, might like that, you know, spirituality <laughs> of the motorcycle. Because you got Zen and motorcycle maintenance. Why not, you, yeah. know, you know, a Christian version, you know, meditation. If people maintenance. are interested, I have a little tiny series. There's only eight episodes so far, but it's called Motopat on YouTube. And you can find me at PMR-TV. And you could hear me and see the bikes that I ride. I ride a Yamaha West and a BMW in, in these, this part of the world. We have a wonderful guest today. Well, we have always a wonderful guest on the program, but we have another wonderful guest today, Sister Rose Picati. And among her many interests, including media and digital literacy, she's a well-known as a film critic. So I got to ask you guys, Having being a film buff myself, what is your favorite movie, Dennis? I don't have a favorite movie. No, I don't know. no. I go, you know, it's asked me what my favorite book is, what my favorite, who my favorite saint is. Depends on the one I'm reading now. Depends on the last one I saw. Depends on my mood. I don't have a, you know, I don't have. A, I can't think of anything. I can think of a lot of them that I love, but I can't think of my favorite. I, no, I can't. don't All have right. a favorite movie. I don't know how you make that decision. Well, maybe it's a different question. Maybe it's what movie, when you're surfing through, the, other than the one you just saw, and by the way, I kind of agree with that answer, too. I can think of a couple of movies I've seen recently that I like, but I wouldn't call them my favorites. Yeah. Maybe the question should be, if you're sitting in front of your TV and you're you know, going through the cable channels and you see a movie on which are the ones that you will stop and watch some part of or maybe the entire thing again which ones do you continually go back to and just don't mind watching again and so what would that be true for me i have 
not surprising answers. Moonstruck with Cher and Nicolas Cage. I love that movie. I just, there's something about it that just, I find really captivating and sad and happy at the same time. I love Danny Aiello's role in it. It's just, I just really love the movie. And to me, it's a family movie. And I just love watching it. The other one is The Godfather, any of them. Now, everybody always says, you know, Godfather 1 and 2, you know, classic cinema. Godfather 3 was horrible. I like Godfather 3, too, because it kind of finishes the story off. Maybe you don't like it as much as the other two, but it, it tells a story about Michael Corleone at the end, you know. You know, I think critics are beginning to reevaluate Godfather Part 3. So, so it happens. You wait long enough and they start reconsidering. All right, Patrick, how about you? Well, any movie that Sergio Leone made and any uh, movie that Tom Hanks was in, I really love Tom Hanks as a, he's just a great character in everything he's in from big all the way to Apollo 13. I just love the guy. Yeah. Well, if I were to use the criteria that Drew had used, what would you stop and watch part of if it showed on t television? It would definitely be Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'd, but if I came across that, I would end up watching the whole thing. But my favorite all-time movie is Casablanca. And I saw that once with a group of students at Boston College many years ago. And it was like a audience participation. And so if you've seen the movie, this is the famous scene where everyone starts singing La Marseillaise. And all the students got up and started singing along with yeah. all the refugees in the movie. And one of the great things about that movie is that the displaced persons in that movie were actually real displaced persons from Europe who played parts in that film. I didn't I, know that. Yeah, know it's that? pretty fantastic. And, and by the way, I'm modifying my answer. I'm also adding Casablanca to that and Monty Python. But let me be controversial. I would watch Life of Brian every time it comes on. <laughs> All right, if we're getting into the light well. stuff, the first thing that came to my mind as you were talking about Monty Python, which is a good one, was uh, The Big Lebowski. Oh, yeah. Which yeah, just celebrated great its, uh, it's great 20, 25th anniversary, I believe. Yeah. And uh, there's so many things in there that it j just tickle me. I the, just find it really, the dude really enjoyable. I would have to stop and watch that. Well, let you me know, ask but you it, this. Do you have a job? Do you have a job, sir? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> have our movies all lined up for our next retreat together then. No. I think we've identified them. Yeah. All right. Well, we have a great guest. Let's go to it. Well, hello, Sister Rose, and welcome. Thank you, Deacon Mark. Nice to be here with you. I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. I'm sure many of them are already familiar with your work. But for those who may not know, Sister Rose Bacate comes to us today from Rome, and she is a daughter of St. Paul. She's the founding director of the Pauline Center for Media Studies in Culver City, California, where she is on the teaching staff. Sister Rose is an award-winning author of books and articles on film and scripture, media literacy education, and artificial intelligence, among many other related topics. She is an adjunct professor at the Catholic University of America here in Washington, D.C., and teaches and develops online adult faith formation courses for the University of Dayton. She wrote film reviews for St. Anthony Messenger magazine for 20 years and today contributes to the National Catholic Reporter, 
She's served on film festival juries around the world. We're delighted to have the opportunity to chat with her today. Again, welcome, Sister Rose. Buena sera. We're happy to have you with us. Yes, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. So can we start perhaps by talking about your journey in becoming a sister and how you got involved in film and media and digital literacy? Oh, sure. So when I was a teenager, I was going into my junior year of high school. I was at the Del Mar Fair in San Diego with a bunch of my Girl Scout friends. We had done volunteer work in the morning. And in the afternoon, we were standing at, we're outside of a ride and there was only enough room for everybody but one. I told people, well, I'll take care of your stuff and you go on the ride. And there I am looking at them and they're, we're all having so much fun and it's such a happy time. And I was just started thinking to myself, you know, this is going to be over in a little while. I'm happy now, but what about tomorrow and tomorrow? And I had talked about becoming a nun with my mother. I didn't go to Catholic school, but CCD, we had nuns at the parish, but I just thought about the only one that's going to make me happy forever is God. You know, that's the only one you can really count on. God doesn't change. So I went home. I told my mother. She told the lady in charge of our religious education program. She knew our nuns in San Diego at the time. We we no longer have that bookstore. So it was one thing after another. So it was during high school, but they had a high school aspirancy. So I entered the convent in August of that, 1967. And, you know, it hasn't always been easy, but I remember when I made my 25th Jubilee of Vows in 1997, I finally said to my grandmother who was in heaven, Protestant grandma, who became Catholic at the end of her life, I said, Grandma, you always wanted to know if I was happy, and I can say yes. Now I can say yes. And now it's been 51 years of religious profession. So so that's how I got in the convent. It wasn't because of our mission as Daughters of St. Paul, however. That came after, you know, as I came to know our sisters, as I came to know our mission of evangelization, using the media to spread God's word, to spread the gospel message. So at a certain point after, let's see, 20, almost 25 years of religious life, I was living in New York. I was the superior of our community. And we, a friend subscribed us to the New York Times every day. You know, you can't read the New York Times and not be aware of how much the media and technology permeates the world. Now, this is 19, the late 80s and early 90s. And I started saying, you know, in our constitutions after Vatican II, we not only talk about using the media to spread the word of God, but we're also invited, we're asked by our constitutions to teach the idea of critical thinking about the media that we consume. And that's really got my imagination that we daughters of St. Paul are more than books. We're more than bookstores. We're more than videos and music, which is all great. Spreading the word of God through the media is what St. Paul would do today. But this idea of reflecting on it, of actually trying to understand what goes on behind the scenes, and especially the consumeristic part of it, and how we can become intentional, critical, not negative, but critical consumers of the media that we enjoy, that we participate in, and now, of course, that we create. 
You sort of described a little bit what you were we were talking about with respect to media and digital literacy, but could you expand on that a little bit more? I think that term may be a little mystifying to some. Yeah, and it sounds hard. It sounds very cerebral. Mm. And in, I think, the world of education, public education or non-faith-based religious education, that it does, it's very cerebral. But what it is, it's the ability to access, to be able to read or understand, to analyze, evaluate, and create media, to be involved in it. And it's like reading and writing, regular literacy, right? How to read and write, understand, create, how to write. It is applies to each form of media, not just the legacy media or the traditional media, press, films, radio, television, but now this whole converged and emerging world of digital media and technology and all the problems that it that are exacerbated. The problems that we had in regular traditional media are just exacerbated now because of the whole idea of this coded bias that gets into the algorithms that run everything. So anyway, it's I love it. It's fascinating. And I think asking people to come along for the journey of understanding and even to go what they call critical media literacy means to evaluate, analyze, understand, and critique, especially the systems that keep all of these media in place, and especially the economic and the political economic systems that go that are involved here. And it's not just the United States. Now, the United States just has is the loudest part of this, but it's other countries too. Like just last week, I don't know if you've heard this, that the European Union passed a set of laws to govern artificial intelligence. They are the only ones in the world that have done this so far. But even then, they're a little late to the party. They already need to go back and readjust some of these laws, but at least they're doing something and offering a model to the rest of the world. And I'm not saying that, you know, we need government control of everything because that's another extreme, but we do need some kind of, somebody has to take responsibility here. Who's the grown up in the room here? So these are all questions and ideas that we talk about in media literacy education, digital literacy education. But in the faith formation world, we would call it media mindfulness because we want to not just do a cerebral activity. We want to look at the whole person and the whole Christ, how we bring the whole Christ to the whole person in this world and how we sanctify, how we transform these means. So I think as people of faith, we can go much further than the regular world of education that we need, by the way. I love how you tie faith into this because it, it as a social science, it's important, but you are able to bridge that to our faith issues as well. You mentioned a, go, a moment ago about the tensions in society that are exacerbated by our social media. In teaching about media literacy and digital literacy, you're helping to give us the tools to understand the biases that are built into the systems and into the way that we communicate with each other. Indeed. And what we're asking is that we reflect on ourselves reflecting, which is something that AI cannot yet do, but we can, and we can take responsibility for what we do. And we can foresee consequences that we're not really good at doing, but there are consequences to our interactivity on social media. That's what we think of first, but of course this, it goes so much further nowadays, but I think we have to be responsible 
consumers and creators of media, whatever form we are involved in. I work in education and looking at applications of AI and education. And one of the things we've noted is that, for instance, in applications in language learning, that artificial intelligence is useful in, if you ask what are the biases of an author of an article, it's pretty good at picking out those kinds of things that I kind of wonder, you know, does the general reader have that kind of ability to pick those biases out? In the same way that those who create the algorithms with this embedded bias that many of them I don't think are even aware of because they're not really reflective people. I think that the people who are in place are smart, they're intelligent, but they're not reflecting on themselves or the choices that they make. For example, if you've seen the film Coded Bias on Netflix, which I recommend to everyone, it's a documentary, this young Black woman at MIT discovers that the facial recognition software doesn't see her. But if she puts on a white mask, boom, she ends up testifying before Congress and they say to her, well, who does this preference? And she it comes out, white men, then white women, and then anybody else. So if these type of biases are embedded in the type of software that does insurance, you know, permissions for insurance, or even as to who is receives benefits and things like that, well, guess who gets left out? It's not white people. It's not white men. It's people of color and people who are poor. It's a really revealing documentary and all the information is documented, which, you know, can bring you to the whole issue of fake news and fake images and deep fake fakery that's on that AI can be part of. And the fact that the United States, you know, they have these companies came together a few years ago to two or three years ago to create guidelines. Oh, guidelines, suggestions. We're really good at that, aren't we? And then, well, there's no consequences, there's no legal requirements for these people to show that what they do is not harmful, will not be harmful. No, they just, as with everything else, they get to just do it until somebody brings a lawsuit. And then who's got enough money to have a good lawsuit against these people who are actually shaping our future as we speak? Yeah. The prejudices and biases that they may not even be aware of because they don't ask, they don't get good consultants. If you look at, anyway, I could go on and on. Yeah, it's frustrating. You know, the the other thing is that it's money driven. We don't want any shackles on us because we're here to make money. We are not going to Catholic social teaching here for the common good. Thank you. We're not. Thank you. We're not. So let's get that straight up front. Just when I was doing the old, in high school, when I taught high school religion, for many years. And in the 80s, I believe it was the early 80s, for, for till it just got to be too old to do, there was a thing you may remember, says the television awareness training. Well, tech, of course. But yes. That was with the, Sister Elizabeth Toman. Do you remember her? He, no, he, this was called television awareness training, and I forget the group that did it. But they, secular, it, was, it was ecumenical. It was very yeah, good. Maybe mm -hmm. it was. But anyways, and they would do things like, and I would use it with my juniors to start to teach them some media literacy. 
you are being sold to the advertisers, the show's the bait. You know, get a clue as to what really is going on here because, and my pitch would be as the religion teacher, because they don't love you like Mr. Dolan does. They just want your money. I just want you to be happy. So you should start recognizing you're being sold, you're being bamboozled just in an ordinary TV watching session. So I would do that with them. So I just think that this is critical. I've thought it for a long time. And now with AI, it's just ridiculous what the various problems. There was a guy on a doctor, I believe, from, I want to say Boston, was on NPR the other day. And he was talking about, I guess there's this thing you can do. I got to get more into checking out the AI, but with, you know, GP chat or something like that, and you can say to it, make me a picture of a dog on a skateboard in Times Squares, and it'll generate one. And uh, this doctor said, show me a surgeon. And it was all white men. There were no women. It was multiple tries. And this, nope, I'm sorry. It's white guys that are surgeons. There are no, no women, no people of color kind of stuff. So that algorithm you're talking about, what I want to know is when is this going to become part of the component of the CCD classes? Because we're missing, you know, we're being undercut. You know, I got an hour of CCD. I got an hour of religion in a Catholic school. And then you're going to watch. I don't even know what the numbers, maybe you know the numbers. I used to know the numbers, what the average kid watched and listened to. And I used to tell them that, you know, they listened at the time. They listened to the top 10, the top 40 records like 40 times a week the average teenager and the messages and that, you know, and all that stuff. So when, is, when do you know of anything in religious education where what you're doing in these kinds of issues are being put in as a theme in, throughout the religious education? We, Daughters of St. Paul and our Pauline Center for Media Studies since 1995, we've been trying to integrate media literacy education into faith formation. Sister Gretchen Heiler and I, we wrote two books, one for St. Mary's Press called Media Mindfulness, Educating Teens in Faith and Media. And then with Pauline Books and Media, we did Our Media World, Educating Kids K through 8. And so we did a module for each grade level from K through 12 with these two books. And we're in the process of revising them because one was published in 2007, the other one 2010. Guess how long it took for them to become outdated? I mean... Yeah, because you can't get past kids. If you start talking about Laverne and Shirley to kids today, that that just (laughs) invalidates. You're on another planet. No, they haven't even seen The Matrix. Are younger people, are they more savvy from a media and digital literacy standpoint than those of us who are a little bit longer in tooth? I think, you know, I I was watching the other night some old episodes of the old Paulist TV series, Insight, you know? And at the end of the episode, Father Elwood Bud Kaiser comes on and he tells you what the point of that episode that you just saw was. And I thought, huh, I wonder if that's, you know, it seems a little bit too obvious. Would people today feel that they need to have that message pulled out for them? Or is it just as, you know, difficult for people younger people to to kind of get that idea from watching a a segment, a TV show, or any digital media? As a media educator, because I have a master's degree in education and media studies, and the pedagogy for that is that what you want to do is teach them to ask the questions, not to tell them the answers. 
you ask who created this message, what's really going on, what's going on behind the scenes, you know, what aren't we seeing, who's left out in this message, who's targeted, watch an Apple commercial, there's one came out a few years ago, a Christmas Apple commercial that I really loved. It was very, it was like a Hallmark one, you know, it was very moving and all this, and then you see at the end, there's the Apple and you know, oh, (laughs) yeah, they're always trying to get it. (laughs) But do we realize that they're trying to create nostalgia and warm, fuzzy feelings? And the family that was involved in this commercial was just a normal middle-class family. But it's so aspirational to have iPhones and the latest iPhone. And yeah, you can create a movie that makes your family all happy, which is fine. But And that is a good use of it, actually. But the thing is, as you said before, we're being bought and sold. Our eyeballs are being bought and sold. You search for something on Google and all of a sudden, all kinds of ads for it show up in your Facebook feed. Kids are not on Facebook. You know that, right? You have to be on Instagram or TikTok or something else. because It's only people our age who are on Facebook. But we deserve attention as well because we have influence on the younger people in our lives. And I think... So I don't dismiss any platform that we can do to reach people by asking questions that that matter. Who made this? Why did they make it? What techniques did they use to get our attention? What can I do? Are there any gospel values involved here? Any human values involved here? Some of the best commercials, of course, are Super Bowl commercials. The Pepsi and Coca-Cola commercials, especially 20 years ago, some of them are so funny. And they use music, they use humor, they use animals, they use kids. And you know, those that's the magic formula to get people to of all ages to watch. It is so obvious, though, sister, and especially in the Super Bowl, com- Super Bowl commercials, I remember, in the past, they'll go for 30 seconds, and I have no idea what they're selling. All they're, And then I realize all they're trying to do is influence me. And then you're right, sometimes at the end, you see the apple and you know, okay, it's apple, and they just made me feel good. I guess I should go buy Apple products. Exactly. Except now I had this reverse reaction because, oh, now the new iPhone is out. And I'm also told that I have to buy a new charger for the new iPhone. What They are, they know how to make money. As Dennis said, it's all about money. I've recently had the opportunity to take a couple of webinars on implicit bias. And this was in the legal field. It's a, the whole lesson was to try to keep lawyers and judges from making decisions based on bias they didn't even know that they had. And there are tests I learned about, and I took a couple, that you know, it'll take you two and, two and a half minutes, maybe five minutes to take a test, and you don't even know all of a sudden that maybe your bias is against things that are dark. And if, thing, if you're against things that are dark... Are you against people of color? You know, you have to take it out to where it really goes. I'm one of those people who say, oh, I'm not prejudiced against anybody. But I also may be one of those people who cross the street to get to the other side if I see somebody in a hoodie walking down toward me. So I think all of this is connected to the way we sometimes don't understand how we're being manipulated by whatever's on the media. And if I may just, and this may be unconnected, but I've been thinking about it ever since you started. Back in 1970, I started off to be a journalist. I am not a journalist. I didn't follow up on that career. I dropped out of that program in my first college. But at that time, they made us read Marshall McLuhan. 
And the medium was the message. And he was specifically, I think, talking about t- television. I know it's dated, and maybe it, is it irrelevant now, or d- d- have his ideas kind of morphed into where we are today? I personally think Marshall McLuhan is more relevant than ever. Everything he had to say works for today, even with you just change the look at us with our iPhones. Media right. are the extensions of man and women, right? How many of us die when we can't find our phone? This is how dependent we are on this. And, you know, when I have to, in in Rome now, but in Los Angeles, we go to a screening and you'd have to turn in your phones. You couldn't take them in the theater. And I would always say to the guard taking our phone, I would say to him, please don't lose this. My whole life is here. You know, that whole science fiction thing, a half person, half machine. You got this phone attached to your hand all the time. And we even got Google Glasses if you don't want to have it in your hand. Or you could have it, you could do it through the watch on your wrist. How far are we from having, you know, a chip implanted somewhere and, you know, these kinds of things? It makes total sense to me because the conversation about this is ongoing. It's out there. And I don't know. I feel like I'm half cyborg because I have a brand new right knee, right? (laughs) That works. (laughs) That's implanted. There you go. And if they'll never watch a YouTube on how they do it, it's terrible. But anyway, <laughs> but it works. We work. But yeah, the look at Minority Report. Go back as far as the 1930s with the silent or the 20s, the silent film Metropolis, the Fritz Lang mo- movie, which is so prescient, so prophetic. And, you know, these science fiction stories are amazing in the fact that yeah have you seen robot and frank no it came out in 2012 it could have come out yesterday the movie her you know mm. where this guy has a romantic relationship with basically a language model right you know so with an ai system so if we're paying attention even to popular culture there are voices of prophecy out there asking us to pay attention to what's going on and the pope constantly telling us to make sure our humanity is at the center of this, the human dignity and the common good. Up until World War II and the Holocaust, the common good came first in the list of Catholic social teaching, even though it hadn't been so definitively pinpointed the way it is now, right? But After that, human dignity kind of rose above the common good, but they're pretty much together. And the Pope is constantly teaching us Catholic social teaching that is embedded in scripture and and the tradition of Catholic thought for how many centuries since the beginning, since the fathers of the church, the doctors of the church. So we have a richness at our fingertips that are, is available to us in teaching that other faith traditions do not have. Marshall McLuhan was a good Catholic. <laughs> well, and I think we need to celebrate this moment. Did you know that the theme of World Peace Day today, this year, is artificial intelligence? How about that? The Pope announced that. Why don't we even pay attention to World Communications Day, which is the seventh Sunday of Easter every single year? And it has been since 19... 19- 66 or 67 when we had the first one which was called for by a vatican ii document intermorifica and we have all of this these wonderful resources to help us navigate this world and yet everybody's wringing their hand what do we do what do we do well 
guess what? Form your conscience. Be aware. Look at what the church is teaching us and guiding us, which no other faith tradition has. And that's something to be grateful for, but also to delve into. Our most recent popes have shown an interest in the power that cinema can have for our faith and our lives as human beings. And I think Pope Francis has indicated that Babette Spies was one of his favorite films. How did you get interested in film? Well, I think I always loved movies. I Even as a child, I don't think I ever saw myself as being a professional, professionally involved in them. But I, two movies influenced my vocation very strongly. One was The Song of Bernadette, and the other was The Trouble with Angels, which you might remember. And I really helped move me forward in my discernment that year before I entered so the convent. So the way it happened for me is that after I came back from England and started our Media Study Center, a priest, Father Peter Malone from Australia, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, he had written three books, or he started to write three books. He'd written one, and it put the Sunday gospel, Sunday readings, in conversation with a mainstream film. He brought it to our publishing house in Boston, and since I knew him because he was in Catholic communications groups as I was for many years, I still am. And the editor, our editorial person said, we'll take this project on if you will work with Peter, you know, if you'll be the first editor, primary editor. And, but as it happened after the first one, I became a co-author because we had to, this was shaped for a U.S. audience. And if any Australians are listening here, (laughs) We don't speak English the same way. You know, we have our colloquialisms. And so that had to be shifted a little bit. But we managed to publish four books, and we have a fifth one waiting to come out, which will probably come out online, hopefully before Peter or I go to heaven. But anyway, you know, it's on the Beatitudes and the Deadly Sins, which I must tell you was a lot of fun to write. Hollywood does this Deadly Sins really well. In case you were wondering. (laughs) Yes. And you've written uh, a number of reviews. That seems to be a passion for you. Yes, indeed. So I had started writing a blog when AOL had the journal. Do you remember that? Back in the late 90s. And I just started writing about films for my own pleasure and just to put something online. And then it morphed into Blogspot or some other thing, WordPress. And then St. Anthony Messenger came calling out of Cincinnati, the Franciscan magazine that's in many parts of the world different in its own iteration. But And they asked me if I would take over from their film reviewer who had been reviewing for 40 years for them. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And that's was just a, I'm just so pleased that they thought of me. Of course, I was well positioned for that because I had moved to Los Angeles and was getting invited to screenings and to press days and things like that. So yeah, that's how that took off. And then the National Catholic Reporter asked me to write for them in 2009, but it wasn't a column that was more contributing. Whereas I did a column for St. Anthony Messenger for 20 years, completed that this year. In June, I wrote my last column. Oh, is that right? Oh, wow. 
you know, it was 20 years and I said, you know, I don't want it in my obituary that I wrote for them for 21 and a half years <laughs> or 23. So I called the editor and I said, let's make it 20 or 25. And he just started laughing. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I think I'd like to cap it at 20 just because I wanted, I was reaching my 50th Jubilee. I was asking to come away to go to, to another country for a year you know, just to get a different perspective. So they said, come to Rome, which I did. And now I'm back in Rome. So yeah, so it was a wonderful 20 years with them. And I think they're doing the reviews in-house now, but it's a very popular column for them. People like to read about what Catholics are thinking about the various artifacts of popular culture that just keep coming down the pike faster than ever. What is it that you're looking for? When you, What are you trying to convey to your readership when you are writing about film? Well, a good story, first of all. I want a, a, a movie that makes us think, that reaches us on a human level, on a spiritual level. And of course, the the one criteria that the Franciscans gave me when they hired me was, you know, do whatever you want, review whatever you want. But the only thing we really want you to speak out on is violence, because as Franciscans, that was a big key for them. So noting extra, you know, the violence in the film or things like that. And, you know, some films, they kind of tell you what you're supposed to understand. I don't care for those kind of movies. And actually, I'll say to the filmmakers, you really don't want me to review that movie because it's just (laughs) a sermon in a can. And. It's not really a, it's not really cinema. Yeah. You know, cinema reaches us in the depths of our soul, good cinema. And good cinematic storytelling doesn't tell us what to believe, but creates that space between the director and the screen that lets us make our own meaning from the film, not to impose meaning. Film shows it doesn't tell. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I, would, I, like. I would have loved to have been in that room. When you looked at a Hollywood type and he heard a nun tell him, we don't want a sermon. You don't want me to review you. This is a sermon. And when he said, oh, my God, it's a sermon that even a nun doesn't want to hear. I'm done. I'm dead. You know what I mean? Like that was Hollywood type, But Hollywood types don't do that. It's mostly your Christian filmmakers that do that. They yeah. want to make sure you get it. Like they don't trust the audience to get it. So they have to say what they're going to say it and then say what they said and that's not oh i know what you're talking about the kind of okay you're not that's kind of the military approach yeah yeah i've seen those they're terrible they're terrible they're just too even if you agree with just too pedantic or you know yeah no they don't challenge us they just confirm our beliefs most of them unfortunately some of them even confirm biases and that i really call them out on that how can movies bring us closer to god I think when the movie touches us deeply, that is a place where we find our fellow human beings and we find, and that's where we find God. We, When the story shows us the face of God, I think that's how it brings us to God. And I mean, there's some, okay, this is a film about Catholic monks, but it has one of the most transcendent scenes that I've ever seen in my life is of gods and men. Mm-hmm. about the Trappist monks who were yep. killed in Algeria. That scene of their Last Supper, when it's mm. playing Swan Lake, and they their whole the whole film is being about them, should they leave or should they go? 
but they've taken a vow of stability. And I don't know how many people got this. Swans mate for life. So they make this commitment for life and they're animals, right? So here we are, they're playing this beautiful music and they have decided that they will keep their vow of stability and stay, even though they had the option to leave when there was danger. I don't know. It To me, that's just one of the most sublime films I've ever seen. But so even take Cinema Paradiso, another film that can transport us to another place through the eyes of this child, right? Experiencing film. Stories, storytelling. See, we are people of stories. Jesus knew that. And we know that. And so when a story is well told, whatever the medium, it lifts us. It lifts us up. It's lit- To me, it's like good literature. A very good book is not going to tell you that you need to love God, but at the end of the book, you realize that you need to love God, you know? Or you need to love people. Right. Loving By loving people, people. that we love God. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a better way of saying it, sister. Thank you. I love, and I might sit here struggling with examples, but have them all the time in, when I'm not trying to think about them so I can talk about them on a podcast, but I love when I walk away from a movie and I know that the filmmaker and all the people involved in the movie were not thinking about, you know, drawing a parallel to St. Francis's life or to Jesus's life. And that's what I took out of the movie. When I take it out of a movie and they don't mean to give it to me, I wonder about like how the Holy Spirit is moving us, at least moving, you know, me or moving them to get to me. It's, there are some musicians that I love to listen to And in their past, they have said that they don't believe in God. And I just laugh because how do you think you would have been able to compose this music and sing it the way you do and play the guitar the way you do if God didn't have something to do with it? I mean, you know, and so I get that out of movies, too. And, And can we go back to violence for a moment? I certainly agree that there is gratuitous violence in a lot of movies and it's just not necessary and it's also filmed in a way that doesn't have to be filmed. You go back and look at the movies from the 40s and the 50s and you can sit on the edge of your seat, but you don't see blood all over the place. But you're, I wonder whether you're saying, though, that there should be no violence. You're not, I don't think you're saying no violence. There's a no, place because no. violence is inherent. Not inherent is, that's too strong of a word. There's so much violence in our society. Look at the Bible. Look at the Bible. <laughs> I was exactly. going to say. <laughs> exactly. I, you know. One of the two most violent films I've ever seen was Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And that was the verbal and psychological and emotional violence of that movie is without comparison to me. And then another one, the most violent scene I ever saw in a movie was in Chinatown. I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, It was so violent, so small, but so intensely violent. Was it appropriate for the film? Yeah, I think it was. But I'm going to go to my favorite, one of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, who said that for fiction needs enough violence and enough sex to make the story credible. And that's all. So that's, I think, when films or other storytelling medium go overboard that's when they lose their artistic edge i guess i would say they fall into a category of just entertainment and i'm not even sure 
how entertaining that is. It's interesting though, right? And by the way, I thought, Drew, you were talking about gratuitous violins. I, and then I realized, oh, no, you're talking about violins. Well, that's just uh, way too many violins in an orchestra. <laughs> Ask Mahler. Mahler really overdid it. <laughs> but you look at you look at the Godfather movies, right? And violence is integral to the storytelling there. And then the Quentin Tarantino movies where that really goes over the top. At what point is it the sort of thing, Dennis, that you're talking about, where is the bounds, where it's part of that storytelling, Sister Rosa, you're talking about that's so important to the impact of the movie for us. Well, here, this is going to freak you out, but <laughs> you said Quentin Tarantino. So Pulp Fiction, when I first saw Pulp Fiction, it blew me away, but not in a good way. Mm-hmm. But I was in England at the time going to school when it came out, and I heard this Jesuit at this world, it was a communications day mass for Catholics working in media. And he is going on and on about Pulp Fiction. And I'm going, oh my goodness, what on earth did I miss? So it wasn't until maybe 12 or so years ago, we had a national film retreat, which we've had every year since the year 2000, two or three sometimes, a group of lay people and ourselves, the Daughters of St. Paul. And we used Pulp Fiction as one of our as one of our films. And I have to tell you, if you're not just completely consumed by the violence in it, there's a lot going on there that's actually quite remarkable, but tough to watch. You know, I, I that was the last time I saw it was at our film retreat. So I've seen it twice. It was fine. I'm good. I'm good with that. But I'm just going to use Flannery O'Connor's um, measure there. Measurement. The measure is what it is. And even if you take 13 billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, do you remember that? Yep. Yeah, yeah it was a great movie. Fabulous because it, you know, it's not about the violence. It's about something else. It's about a mother's pain and anguish. And so that's the sacramental sacramentality of a film where it's an externalization of inner realities. How else do you show emotions and grief and all these tremendously strong emotions unless they are somehow demonstrated externally on the film and in the filmmaker's vision? I... And I was just thinking, sister, about the uh, Clint Eastwood movie, Gran Torino, and how I just watching it, I was thinking only about the crucifixion, you know, at the end. It was like, wow, amazing. Well, I I always have arguments about Gran Torino. Way to go, Patrick. Yep, now, here we go. Leave it to Patrick. Target, you know, you know, it almost seemed... It was really hard for me to give it a complete pass as far as a martyrdom goes, because it seemed like he was out there provoking it. But anyway, at the end of the day, people love that movie, despite its violence. Before we leave film, I've got to ask, I've got two questions I'm bringing to ask you. One is, I mean, what are your favorite movies? <laughs> and then I'll hold for the second one. Well, you know, that's really hard isn't it? You know, it can change. It can depend. It can be seasonal. But if there's a film that I always teach with, it's uh, John Ford's The Searchers. That to me is classic American cinema. And it's 
absolute the cinematography everything is is so wonderful and memorable i then i get it chinatown is another one that is quintessential american you know and so that one stays with me too but then i'm going to veer off and mention a couple of of foreign films that i just love one is called mostly martha it's a german film and we made it remade it in the states called no reservations it's not bad but it misses the real connections of the german and italian ethos going on for example the protagonist her name is martha but the antagonist name is mario so you've got a martha and mary situation set up in this that doesn't make it into the american version which is a shame because that was the beauty of it another one is uh, children of heaven which is an iranian film about a brother and a sister and the little girl her shoes are stolen and they have to share a pair of shoes to go to school roger ebert said that if you want to introduce your children to international cinema to world cinema start with this film children of heaven because it's such a beautiful family film and what the sacrifices that this boy and girl are willing to make for one another to save their parents who are very poor so we don't even think of iranians or people in iraq of being as being poor but there's are many poor people there so there's so many reasons to love that film is there an explicitly <laughs> religious film that you would also you mentioned of gods and men is there any other oh i love that film oh let's see another explicitly religious film oh well ben hur not the original that was the silent film the next one the one with charlton heston remains of course one of them but here's the thing is that nobody's really told the entire story of ben hur if you've read the book you know there's a whole storyline that's left out which is a shame somebody should remake it the according to the book not the other remake that they changed the ending it's okay but it's not it's not as authentic i think it doesn't have the authentic feel it was the very when i saw that for the first time it's when i first realized how much catholic liturgy is based on the jewish sabbath shabbos and Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Those prayers come from Jewish prayer. And it really was a moment of deep connection for me, just on mm. that, not counting everything else. So I think Ben-Hur, the Ten Commandments, retains its relevance. And I love it. I love the burning bush, the scene of the burning bush. When I think of an encounter with God, that's what I see. Hollywood has not always done religion well. I think Mel Gibson tried in The Passion of the Christ, but of course I have many issues with that film in particular, you know. We've got to wrap up our discussion, unfortunately. I no. I never got to ask my, uh, is Die Hard a Christmas movie question, but maybe oh. next time. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> There's even a baby. Yes. Well, sister, we've had a great discussion. We always ask our guests a question, and we'd like to pose this to you. And that is, it's not directly pertaining to 
film or media literacy. But, you know, we have the desire to reach out to those who are on the margins. And so we ask our guests, what would you say to someone who is at the threshold of the church? Perhaps someone who is about to leave is at the door and is kind of looking out, thinking of leaving, or maybe is someone at the threshold kind of peering in, wondering whether or not to come in. What would you say to someone like that? Either way, on the way out or coming in, I would say your mother is calling you. Your mother is calling you to listen to her son. And her son is a God of mercy and love. And to look to that, not at the human elements of faith or religion that preach a different message than mercy and faith and love, but look to that. And what you've asked is almost a Mr. Rogers question, the question that he asked his mother about when things happen that are bad. And the mother said, look to the helpers. So look to those who show love and mercy and be comforted and know that you are welcome. Thank you so much for that. And for this conversation, we've just really enjoyed talking with you today. Same here. It's a pleasure to meet you after reading you all these years, sister. It's really, really, really an honor. Enjoyed it. Let us pray for each other at this holy season. All right. Can I ask you just a quick question, sister, and we keep recording just for a second, just to see if this is worthy in an editing question. What would you say to pastors about getting on media? What, you know, what would you say to the average pastor? You know, I'm listening to pastors who couldn't wait to get rid of that internet mass that they had going during the pandemic because people aren't coming and they don't. And they say, well, gee, there's no one under 50 here at the parish. And it's, well, you know, you don't exist online, so you don't exist. What would, do you have any thoughts on that for the necessity or the, or advice on how to do it or any kind of response to that situation? Sure. If we don't have a vibrant website that is fresh, it has new information, that we always give people a reason to come back at least once a week, we are losing a tremendous opportunity. And that's just the website. That's not even talking about the, yes, the internet mass, if you will. How many people at home and can't make it to mass are there that really appreciate this? And I just think that, you know, COVID was such a horrible thing for so many people, but it got the church to go high tech, or at least minimum tech, so that they could at least, you know, get the masses out there. Why would we want to let that go or some form of it, of some sort of outreach in this world of digital communications? If we're not there, we do not exist. We are not relevant. Is that what you want? Why would you want that? Why why don't we want to take every opportunity we can? Hire somebody to handle your social media. Hire someone to handle your website, please. You're spending money on what? This is worth spending your money on. You know, when the U.S. bishops let go of almost all of their communications, 
it was a really sad day. It wasn't modeling what the church is teaching. It's not modeling what the church is doing. And is trying to encourage all of us to do is to be involved in this world of digital communication, digital media, social media, and to do it well as followers of Christ, to do it mindfully. For ideas, you can go to our website, which is bemediamindful.org. We also teach a certificate course in media literacy every year. Again, you can go to bemediamindful.org. I recommend it to you, and maybe you'll get some fresh ideas as to make your digital presence vibrant, dynamic, and relevant. Thank you, sister. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, and of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.